Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance psychological and mental well-being and encourage community. And I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are friendly, collaborative animals, and that when we live and know one another in small enough groups, Plato said a thousand, I'm not sure of the exact number, but a group where we know each other by name or at least by face, we are really very friendly and collaborative. We like to get together and do things together. We like to help one another. At the very same time, we must be cognitive of the fact that there are a very small percentage of us that are predators, that are motivated by greed, power, and money And they would rule us if they can. So it is our job, the vast majority of us, and we're over 95%, it's our job to be, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, eternally vigilant so that we protect our democracy and our republic. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, we have with us Dr. Leah Lees. Actually, her name is Dr. Leah DeFrancisi-Shishi. Am I pronouncing it correctly? The <laughs> De Franchisis. De Franchisi. De Franchisis, Lise. Lise. And I'm using her middle name, although she doesn't use it professionally, because it is such a beautiful name. She is a double board certified psychiatrist, both in child and adult psychiatry. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Leah. Thank you for having me, Richard. Let's begin by your telling us. What does it mean to be double board certified and what did it take to get certified in two different areas? <laughs> well, um, it's, it's really, it's so easy. It just is 13 years after high school <laughs> and about a half a million dollars. Oh, that easy. Um, it is college, then medical school. So it's four and four. And then three years of residency, one year where you are working 90 hours a week, in, in ventilator floors and being used as a doormat. And then you do a year of neurology, then you do a year of adult psychiatry, then you do two years of child psychiatry after you finish your adult psychiatry. Then you take two really expensive tests in Texas where you interview patients in front of other people, not to mention nine boards <laughs> that take uh, that cost a fortune and take like six months to study for each. When you, when you, when you, <laughs> say, when you say the test cost a fortune, <laughs> Leah, does that mean they charge you to take the examinations for these? Oh, yeah. And they're like the MCATs, it's 500 bucks. Each board was like, you know, seven hundred dollars. The uh, the board when I had to fly to Texas and interview patients was like fourteen hundred dollars. It was astronomically expensive, which is why it takes so much money to train doctors now. The whole, you know, we talk about the expense of the healthcare system. We can factor that in our loans. Well, I don't often meet people who spent more years in college after high school than myself. Oh, I did 11 years, but 13 years, I, I, I tip my non-hat to you. That's quite something. So 
<laughs> yeah. One of the things we're going to be talking about today is this book. I hope you all can see it on the screen. There it is. Good. That's a great picture of it. No shame. And and uh, Leah refers to herself as this shameless psychiatrist. What I also know you. about you is that uh, you have started a ketamine clinic in Southampton. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm calling it a psychedelic clinic because I'm, I'm hoping it starts with ketamine and expands over time. Uh, with MDMA and mushrooms uh, as soon as I can get legal access to them, which I think will be sooner rather than later. So I'm calling it a psychedelic clinic. Uh, and also, um, it's different from other clinics, and we can talk about that whenever you want. But. <laughs> I would like to talk about it. I, you do know that the city of Oakland, California, Denver, Colorado, and the entire state of Oregon have legalized the use of psychedelic uh, uh, psilocybin mushrooms. So we do have a precedent. For therapeutic, therapeutic purposes. Correct. Yes, I do. And as a matter of fact, I'm sort of researching now the idea of becoming a priest or a shaman uh, and creating a church, the church of the shameless psychiatrist in the Hamptons and using it, uh, trying to get permission to use it for ceremonial purposes legally. So that's on my agenda. I guess you know then that we do have precedent for that as well. There are two churches in the United States that allow, but they're both Native American and and they mm-hmm. allow the uh, the use of certain psychedelics. So Yeah, and I think the community is kind of coming around to the idea of, uh, well, the legal system is, is kind of, it's murky area whether or not what constitutes a church and you know hey i mean i am a healer beyond so what i've always done and all i know so uh i hope at some point to be able to give that kind of therapy to my patients as well yes it's been a long slog over 50 years of uh, Mm -hmm. having these uh potentially important medicines Mm -hmm. uh suppressed by our government uh mostly for political reasons of course we have a Native American tribe called the Shinnecon- Shinnecock Nation in the in the Hamptons, and uh, maybe you know I'm sort of thinking about working with them and 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 sort of see if we could do it legally over there, uh, in collaboration with some of their leaders as well. So I'm looking for whatever loopholes I can find to deliver this really important therapy to pick to patients. And to what extent, if any, has your interest in psychedelic psychotherapy? been influenced by your trip to Burning Man in 2009, Uh, should I say? And and not only did you go to Burning Man in 2009, but you went while you were pregnant. I did, which means I was not using any psychedelics on that trip. But I will say that that Burning Man has really influenced uh, my, my book so much on um, getting rid of sexual shame and my, uh, my work in the field of psychedelics because it's such an open, loving community of people who are always pushing societal envelopes. You could think of Burning Man as the modern, you know, the burners, as we call ourselves, as modern day hippies. You know, we are um, really self-identify as modern day hippies where we're, we're very, you know, pushing societal boundaries wherever we can find them. So hugely influential for me. And I am definitely a card carrying burner. <laughs> Have you gone back since 2009? Yeah, I've been 10 times and I even named my dog burner. 
<laughs> even though she's not allowed to go. <laughs> and does your husband go with you? Yeah. And yes, does, we go together. And does he enjoy it also? Oh, yes. Well, so we have Burning Man names, uh, which are your playa names. It's the, it's the other name you give yourself in, in the other realm. And his is Groove because he does not stop dancing. And mine is Oracle because I always speak the truth whether you like it or not. <laughs> and so you were influenced by Burning Man towards the uh, using uh, psychedelics as medicine. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And also in my book around, um, you know, just being more open about sexuality and who you are um, and trying to live, you know, get the shame and blame out of your game and just, you know, love, love yourself. It's so there's some concepts of Burning Man that are incorporated into my book. One of them is called uh, radical self acceptance, uh, accepting yourself. I'm sorry, radical self-expression, excuse me, which means expressing yourself your, however you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else and, and being very accepting of anybody else who does the same. So that's a principle that I really bring into the book uh, about you know just, just really loving who you are uh, and having parents love their children um, and give them the tools to speak their boundaries um, and they talk a lot in Burning Man about, you know, explicit consent and how to obtain explicit consent. Um, and I think that influenced the book. It's, you know, so as far as the psychedelic work, um, yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've worked with a lot of shamans and healers around the psychedelics. I think uh, the Burning Man community has embraced psychedelics. I've gone, I just went to uh, talks at Burning Man from the maker of the movie, Fantastic Fungi. And I've heard, you know, Rick Doblin speak there. And, you know, he's the founder of, uh, well, one of the leaders of multi MAPS, which is, multi, you know, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. If you want to find any mover or shaker of psychedelics, go to Burning Man. They're all there. <laughs> Rick Doblin is a close personal friend of mine. And I'm pleased to say he wrote the phone for my next book, which is coming out in a couple of months called Psychedelic Wisdom. In that awesome. book, I've got 1,500 years of stories of tribal elders' experience uh, with psychedelics sub rosa during the last three or four decades. So wow, I'm, I can't wait to read yeah, it. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Tell us about ketamine therapy, what your experience is, what you're learning from it, what you're seeing, what can you share with us about ketamine therapy? So I think ketamine is an incredible, incredible psychedelic. Um, and I think, you know, as the people are talking a lot about the plant-based medicines and I love them too, but I think the thing that I love about ketamine is it's a profound antidepressant in its nature. You don't see the same, I don't think, level of antidepressant effects from um, LSD or mushrooms, like, you know, to the point where you can have a actively suicidal person, he does one round of ketamine in there, they're not suicidal anymore. It works so tremendously on teenagers where um, traditional antidepressants have failed, even failed clinical trials, where the margin is very small in the clinical trials. I think there's going to be a huge renaissance of giving ketamine to teenagers for depression um, because of the fact that you know it, it's so superior to a traditional medication for teenagers. Um, I think what I love about ketamine too is the dissociative quality. So if you're extremely traumatized person with a very severe history of post-traumatic stress disorder, 
um, it's a dissociative. So you can experience and relive your trauma without connecting to your body in the same way. What I mean is your body kind of, you feel like you're floating or your body's sort of paralyzed. And for someone who has a lot of fight or flight, that is really a relief. So they can experience and heal from the trauma without feeling like they're, you know, getting that heart pounding. They want to run out the door feeling. Um, mushrooms really connect you. Psilocybin really connects you to your body. And sometimes with a severe level of trauma, that can feel very hard. It can feel very terrifying. I've certainly heard stories of ayahuasca where people, you know, are screaming, have to be tied down because it's so, you know, the experience is so extreme. They're so connected to their body. So I think ketamine is a great medicine. You know, I'm not all of the psychedelics I love, but I think if you just look at the pros and cons of different psychedelics, ketamine has a real place. You think uh, ketamine is uh, more effective for depression than uh, psilocybin? I mean, I've never run a head-to-head trial, no. so I don't know. I can't answer that definitively. Yeah. But I can say that my experience with ketamine is that it's a very profound antidepressant. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I interviewed Roland Griffiths years ago when he did that first research at Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. uh, with psilocybin, and it was uh, it was quite profound. You know, one year later, there's still positive effects, and... Uh, you know, the far, big pharma would have us using something 365 days a year, uh, the SSRIs, in order to get an annuity. And mm-hmm. here he showed with one administration. Talking about administrations, how do you administer the ketamine to your patients? I have used the ketamine in uh, sublingual and in injection, in injection like an intramuscular injection. People are using IVs, but I don't want the headache of putting an IV in. I forgot how to do that in med school. <laughs> Yeah. So one just one shot is, and it's also you know you don't run the risk of like blowing up a vein or something where they have you know someone doesn't have great veins. It's yes. Easier. Now out here in the Bay Area, uh, the ketamine clinics are starting with uh, in office uh, administration, and then they're allowing the patients to uh, purchase lozenges, which they use on their own at home. Uh, Do you approve of that kind of uh, methodology? How do you feel about that? So my, my ketamine practice is only in the context of therapy. So I believe very strongly that you know, from my work with, at Burning Man, from my work in, uh, I mean, not my work, my time at Burning Man, and that set and setting and integration is so important. So I don't believe that giving them the medicine to take home really like speaks of integration. You could, in theory, do it online or on camera, but that's, you know, and do the integration work. But I, I it's not how I'm going to do it. Actually, during the pandemic, uh, one of the clinics out here, the Sage Institute, uh, run by uh, Dr. Jason Butler and Dr. Genesee Herzberg, they were uh, having patients come to the clinic uh, for the Lassange, and then they would go home and they would conduct the therapy via Zoom, which was quite yeah. innovative because they, you know, they were keeping away. From- and I think it's, I think it's great because it's certainly better than nothing. But yeah. I don't, I don't think it's as good as in person. Yes. Did you find that some of your practice uh, during the pandemic became a Zoom practice as well? Oh or yeah. It. And are you moving back to seeing people in the office now? Yeah. So. Obviously, when the world was shut down, I shut down too. But immediately after it opened, even before the vaccines, I was up and running because 
you know, this is a calling for me. And I don't really have like an old person in my house. I just have my husband who's healthy and the kids who I just felt it was my duty to get back uh, to seeing patients because I see kids and kids do not relate well to Zoom. It's like torture, you know, to make them sit there. So, you know, uh, ethically, we all have to make our own decision. I would support whatever choice you make as a therapist, but it just didn't resonate with me. Do you also do family therapy? Will you see whole families? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I do. That's near. Yeah. It's near. <laughs> I mean, the family therapy is near to dear in my heart because Virginia Satir was a mentor of mine. I'm sure you're familiar with with her work and Don Jackson at the Palo Alto Clinic. Okay, let's let's move on now and talk about your book, No Shame. What is shame and how does shame differ from guilt? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, I think that the, that shame is when, when we feel like we violated uh, the social norms we believe in. Um, so, for example, if you put on a bathing suit and you think you're fat or you think you're too short, you might feel shame. Um, and it's not even always necessary for the disapproving person or parties to be present. You actually, you talked about cognitive, you take in these messages and they stay with you. Um, so that's shame. And, um, guilt is when guilt is when you've done something, you feel you've done something wrong, right. And you, and and you feel guilty over a bad choice, but shame doesn't necessarily mean a bad choice. It just means you've ideal, you've kind of internalized some kind of uh, societal message. And, um, you know, we need to only imagine another person or societal's judgment. And we have, and in order to challenge shame, you have to un- challenge and unpack whether those are, those messages are part of your value system and then practice self forgiveness and learn how to be comfortable being your authentic self. So that's like the anecdote to shame. Well, let's use an example in real life where the culture has for many years been teaching women to be incredibly thin. And so the models and clothing have been incredibly thin and they've been promoting thinness. So by what you just said, that would mean that women, females who are not thin or who are chunky or who are even fat are going to feel a certain amount of shame almost all the time. Is that correct? Yeah, and I think that's the case where people who are overweight do feel very shamed um, all the time and have a hard time feeling sexy or loving themselves. Um, and, you know, it's not healthy to be obese. So there is some sort of, you know, idea that there should be some cultural attitudes around being fit and, you know, being healthy and practicing good nutritional practices. But there are some people who are just built a certain way and they're never going to be stick thin. I'm one of them. Right. And, you know, I'm 185 pounds. Right. And yes, I'm very tall, but, you know, it, it's just, I'm never going to be, you know, thin. It's just the way I'm not my body is. But we have to learn to, um, we have to really learn to examine. I mean, is this unhealthy or is this just, I've, I've like internalized all of these cultural messages about how clothes should look and, you know, how I should be. But there's some counter programming too. Like there's a lot of, you know, Instagram accounts and people are, you know, curvy and, you know, when we're trying to counter program a little bit and that really helps, it helps change 
attitude. I want to make an editorial comment on your behalf because some people are going to be listening to this. In fact, many of the people who who listen to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, they listen to it rather than watch it. And they just heard you mm-hmm. say that you're 185 pounds. <laughs> I want to I add to that, all you who are listening in, that, that uh, Dr. Lee is also six foot two and a half. So that, that, <laughs> that 185 pounds is spread out quite remarkably. And she's a very, <laughs> she's a very beautiful woman. So don't be thinking Thank that I'm you. sitting here with someone, a doctor who is unhealthy. We're going to stay on that, not on the shaming side, but on the on the uh, health side, because maybe I didn't use a good example using weight, because although, yes, women are shamed for being overweight, there also is another issue with weight, which is that it's very unhealthy, extremely unhealthy and causes all kinds of problems. So let's try mm-hmm. another example. How about a man who is short? Now, there's he yes, can be short and in great physical shape and he can be very healthy but a man who is five foot five in our culture could potentially be feeling shame. Tell us, is that correct? Absolutely. And it's funny, I've had this discussion twice this week, weirdly enough, in my practice, because I have two uh, parents of boys who are very short, have been short uh, their whole lives because maybe the mom is short or whatever, it comes in their family, have a discussion around giving their child human growth hormone to give them a few inches because of societal uh, pressure to be taller as a man. And I am actually encouraged it because I do believe that we do a lot of things for cosmetic reasons and, you know, being two inches taller might, you know, have an impact on their life and, and mental health in a positive way. So if that, you know, we, we do nose jobs, we do, you know, why not this? If it's, you know, if it's something we can do, but some, you know, before the advent of human growth hormone or, you know, people just, or if it just happens to be that someone is short, you know, they had to learn to live as a short man, which is, which is not easy, you know, and I had to learn being six, I had, I'm six, two and a half. Like there was a lot of shame for me growing up the other way. Cause I towered over everybody and I was embarrassed by that. So I can relate on the other end. And I do believe that, um, we take in these cultural messages, but at some point, you have to learn to be your authentic self and just own it. And there's a lot of ways to do that with cognitive behavioral practices that, you know, you talked about cognitive earlier. I'm a huge CBT fan and dialectical behavioral therapy and learning how to, um, you know, make a joke of it or use humor or just or cognitively reframe. Like there's a lid for every pot, you know, some, you know, you might be short man, but you're going to find your person, you know, uh, who doesn't, who doesn't, you know, worry about that or value that, you know, you have to find someone who aligns with your values or you have to find people who align with your values. So that means, you know, finding your people. Well, this is a complicated topic, really. Maybe one worthy of some additional programs we sort of stumbled on because I realize that if the average male in the United States is somewhere between 5'8 and 5'9, that means for every male that's 5'10, 11, and 6 feet tall, there's going to be a male who's 5'5 five, five, and 5'6 five, uh, to mm-hmm. average that out. And and, uh, yeah, of course. And, and that sounds like a lot of suffering and not an easy thing okay. to get over, even with various kinds of therapy. Would you agree? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a, they have to work through it. And I think, uh, I think most, you know, I think that cultural messages are very important. It's kind of like, 
you know, I, I watched this movie Tall Girl on Netflix. Oh my God, it's hilarious. It was like absolutely my childhood. It was like they made the movie after me. I was like watching my childhood. Um, and she ends up with a very short man who stands up on a, um, on a, on a, like a soapbox to kiss her. And I loved that. I thought that was awesome. You know, they kind of, that's the first way we start breaking, you know, and challenging societal norms. So these are examples we're talking about related to your book. No shame, because tell yeah. us what, what what you're out to do, if I understand, and I want you to tell us more about it, is to reverse the shaming that's going on in our culture, to be, in your yeah. words, shameless. I mean, living a no shame lifestyle builds confidence, you know, feels, you know, self-esteem, it fosters healthy relationships. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, it's a parenting book and it's really giving parents the permission to talk to their kids about these things. So for example, if you're talking about short, if you have a son who's short, then I would say, Hey, go out and find short, you know, um, role models, like go out and find, you know, a newscaster or a person or, you know, has an interesting life, a scientist doesn't matter. Or if you're, kid is athletically built or if you're you know you just find these examples and you counter program and you have to be a part of that like you don't just accept you know the shame you sort of say well look at this person this person follow their instagram accounts instead of just following all these inspiration characters or you know around sexual shame it's like a lot of people experience sexual shame because a they were never given permission to speak about their sex girls were never given uh permission to to really uh, prioritize their pleasure. You know, they're kind of taught that they should stay virgins and they should not have this kind of these feelings and they should push it down and they're going to be viewed as sluts. All these things that like they internalize all of this sexual shame. It's like crazy. Even boys internalize a ton of, um, of, of sexual shame. For example, every boy in my practice, every single one tells me, well, you know, I don't really want to date. It's just like friends with benefit because what's the point of dating? Because, you know, it's not going to work out. Like we're not going to get married. So what's the point? I just want to hook up. And I'm looking at them like, what's the point? What about love? What about like connection? What about intimacy? They're totally, they almost feel shamed into not getting into a relationship. Like it's this toxic masculinity stuff. And it's like, it's really a like parents responsibility to say, you know, sex is pleasurable. Sex is about intimacy. Sex is about connection. Go out and find a, uh, uh, when you're ready, you go out and find that person. You bring them home. We'll give you a safe space in our house for you to have sex because we want that to be a healthy and safe experience for you rather than this whole like, don't do it. Don't think about it, which is garbage because we are programmed to want to have sex from birth. That's like what we're designed to do. So like this whole idea, we're just going to, ostrich syndrome as parents stick our head in the sand and pretend that our kids don't have this whole life but yet we take them to the dentist about their teeth and we educate them about science but we're just gonna like i'm not here i'm not listening see no evil hear no evils you know about sex it's like absurd we just have to change the whole approach and i'm really into like the northern european approach to sexuality and to sex ed which starts in kindergarten in this country are you not fighting religion Oh, yeah, of course I'm fighting religion. (laughs) Yeah, of course I'm fighting religion. Because it's religion that's... I don't don't see that. I don't see it as a fight, but it's just different. It's like one of those things with religion is that they expect, you know, oh, people don't 
shouldn't have sex to get married. But maybe that made sex sense at some point when people were getting married. Like my mom got married at 19. You know, that's very different. People are getting married in their 30s. So, I mean, it's a kind of an absurd proposition to think someone is going to stay celibate till in their 30s when, you know, as soon as they hit 15, it's like they're ready. Their body is ready to go. And do you want your 15-year-old or 16-year-old, 17-year-old getting married now? Like that, that's so absurd to even think about. In an ideal world, would we be teaching teenagers about sex and then allowing them to have sex rather than asking them to postpone it as we are? Are we pushing against the river by trying to get teenagers to wait rather than have sex? Because as you point out, they're ready to go at what? 15, maybe 13, maybe 14, maybe 16. And we're saying, wait, wait, wait. And are we creating a kind of hypocrisy, perhaps? Cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. If you want to, yeah, it's total cognitive nuts. As parents, we're we're creating cognitive dissonance. We're creating hypocrisy. Everything you want to say. You're like teenagers, 15 is going to look at you like, "Uh uh-huh, whatever. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to lie and they're going to do it anyway. So what do you want? You want your, you want to set your kid up to lie to you or do you want to be real? Well, if you're teaching parents to be real, are you teaching them to educate their teenagers and, and, and allow sexual behavior? Or how do you walk that line as a doctor? So that's exactly it. You know, it's about open, kind, compassionate discussions about sex, everything from contraceptive use to, you know, how do you, it's in the book, like, how do you figure out if your teen is ready? What are the, what are the questions to ask to say, okay, you think you're ready to have sex? Have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? You know, for example, have you thought about uh, what kind of contraception you're going to use? Have you thought about where you're going to have sex? What, what actual place, right? Have you thought about, do the other person's parents know? Are you planning to tell them too? Uh, things like, uh, at what point are you ready to have sex? Is it like the first date? Are you going to like, you know, get to know each other? Can you trust that this person is going to be, keep your secrets? And how do you know they're going to keep your secrets? Like, how do you know they're not going to turn around tomorrow and tell everyone at the school what happened? Like, have they shown to be trustworthy? Like, and how, how do you know they're trustworthy? Have you, you know, have they kept your secrets before? You know, do you have, you know, so these are all the questions you kind of say, and, and even you start even before they've even identified a person. I mean, by 10 or 11 or 12, you should be having the conversation of like, you know, what are you looking for in a person that you want to date? How do you know when you're ready to have sex? What are some ways to think about that? Right. So they're already in their mind coming up with their values, you know, oh, I want to be dating someone at least six months. I want to, ha- um, I want to know I can trust them. I want to, you know, I want to have, you know, some time just for, you know, cuddling at first before we even go into the sex realm or kissing or making out. I want to like, these are all the conversations you have with your teenagers. So like it, it happens even before they should be ready to have sex. Like, you know, all those things, like all those conversations and parents are like deathly afraid of them. They think they get to have the sex talk like one time and then that's it. And I laugh. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is like multiple conversations over multiple years. And you're responsible as a parent to help your child create values. And that's what this is about. If we are programmed from birth, as you say, to be sexual animals, why should we be secretive about our sex lives? 
What's the, I don't think we what, should. I, what's the well? You're, you're mentioning about you know teaching the child. You know when they're getting together with somebody, is this someone you can trust that's not going to tell the whole school? And I'm wondering. Maybe everybody should be telling the whole school because all we're doing is saying everybody's doing it. So if everybody's doing it, what's the big deal about outing somebody? What's the shame that's being created? And yet I know what you're talking about because I hear that in the social media, sometimes a boy will have a teenage boy will have sex with a teenage girl and then he puts it on Instagram or someone. He tells everybody and and the and the female, of course, in our culture, then gets what's called slut shamed. You know, she's a girl. Who, yes, exactly. she's a girl who did it, as if doing it is some kind of you know crime. And 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 then she's made to. Yeah, he, he doesn't get slut shamed. No, no, he's called a stud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the reality is, we live in the world we live in, and and, and you know, there is a a really interesting a counter programming community I talk about in my book called Tamara and uh it's in um Portugal I want to say Portugal it could be Spain but I think it's Portugal and it basically they're an open community and and so in that community when I they have children when they raise children around 13 14 you know it's, obviously it's very open they identify the 13 or 14 year old will identify hey I'm ready to have sex this is this is the situation. So they'll, they'll pick a person and they, you know, bless them with like flowers and blah, 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 send them off to have sex. And then they come back, they have like a party. I mean, that's a totally different way of thinking about it, right? So that's one example. But we don't live in that kind of community. We live in this community, as, you know, in this world where there's religion and things. And so people get shamed. So I think a very important part of intimacy is trust. And you can't invite everyone into your bed or into your sex life. And you got to be sure that whoever you're with respects that. So I think, you know, that's because that's the world we live in. What you're saying validates my belief in a, in a new diagnostic category that I've created, which I'm, which I'm discussing in, in another book of mine that's coming out next year called Sex Unveiled. And, and in there, I'm talking about the diagnostic category of cultural hypocrisy disorder, where people, I love it. where thank Tell me you, more. cultural hypocrisy <laughs> disorder, where people suffer profoundly because they're doing something that everybody's doing, but at least half the country is acting as though if you do that, you you should be shamed of yourself, or you should feel guilty, or something bad should happen to you, and yeah. and, and 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 unfortunately. Some of the cultural hypocrisy disorder is being led by religious leaders, such as those who go out and scream hellfire and brimstone if you get involved sexually. And then we find out that very evangelical leader is taking methamphetamine and, and hooking up with prostitutes in the bad neighborhoods. We've had that happen and it's been nationally exposed. And those are great examples of cultural hypocrisy disorder. But I think I think most of the country is suffering from it. Of do as yeah, and shame leads shame leads to you know cultural hypocrisy, which leads to shame, which then leads to what I see in my practice is a lot of avoidance. Like they they can't connect to their body sexually. Like they you know they have this like virgin whore complex. Men like they can't they can't see their wives as someone who can be dirty and everything from disconnecting from your sexual pleasure. Uh, to uh, depersonalization symptoms where you feel like you're not in your body because you can't connect to your true nature, to even depression or anxiety. So 
um, it's, it, it becomes this spiral. Um, and also, you know, just creates a lot of problems in society, which is why I, you know, really felt like the no shame book, you know, and really addressing those things head on with your children, uh, talking about, you know, what goes on in the body, biology, reproduction, normalizing it is so important. Well, in your book, when you talk about parents talking to their children openly Mm -hmm. and you're fostering open communication, you talk about Mm -hmm. different parenting styles, authoritarian, Mm -hmm. permissive, neglectful, and these are all styles that are going to create some kind of dysfunction. Tell us about a style... Well, you can tell us a little about authoritarian, permissive, and neglectful if you like, but I also want to hear about a style that you promote that you think is going to be an effective one for creating the least dysfunction in the child as they grow up. Yeah. I mean, the author, uh, authoritarian style is kind of do what I say, not what I do. It's kind of the, the style of like, you know, you will obey my rules. You'll be back at this time. You know, it's just kind of like, it's the tiger mom, quote unquote, you know, this like, I'm going to overschedule you, you have to do what I want. You know, uh, there are a million rigid rules. There's, you know, because I said so, kind of of style of parenting, which then leads to a lot of avoidance patterns in kids also leads to kids to like, frankly, just lie, because they can't get away with anything. So the mom will just lie and try to get around things. and, you know, can lead to a lot of like burnout in a lot of kids, you know, like they might do well when they're younger, but then they just burn out a lot of perfectionistic behavior, a lot of anxiety. Um, and then you have neglectful parents who, you know, they really just don't pay much attention to their kids and they think that their kids are their best friends. And these are also the kind of parents who tend to, oh no, that's permissive. They tend to think that their kids are the best friends. They tend to parentify them say things like to bring home their own problems. What would you do? Or if they're dating, ask their kids dating advice. It's like, you know, and then there's a neglectful, they just don't pay that much attention. That's not good to you because kids need boundaries. But authoritative is the best, which means, you know, they're really willing to be the authority figure, but they're also willing to listen and they're also willing to negotiate. So you have to give to get. So, you know, they'll say, okay, you're ready to have sex. How about this? You wait three months. We'll go get you birth control. We'll, you know, make sure this person sticks. I'll find the right, you know, a safe space in our house. And you do it then. That's an example of authoritative kind of parents. Rather than saying, no way, not till you're married. Because that is just going to result in uh, the kid lying. So sex is definitely a major topic with regard to shaming and children growing up. What are some of the other topics of major shaming that you run into between parents and children or with the teenagers and children that you treat? Um, I think a major shaming is around um, function. Like, will I be in a functional adult? Will I live up to societal expectations in terms of money or in terms of grades or career? We don't tend to value different kinds of intelligences the same way. We definitely value academic intelligence in children more than we would value artistic intelligence or social intelligence. Um, so kids internalize a lot of shades about not being capable enough. So, so that's something that really happens. Can, can you say something about the demographics of the population that you treat out there? 
in the Hamptons? Is it a is it a wide variety of people, or is it a particular niche of the socioeconomic spectrum? Yeah, I mean, the Hamptons is in a very interesting place because it's very binary. We have extreme wealth, extreme, like nuts. You know, you probably heard about the Hamptons. And then it's the, you know, billionaire, affluent, you know, kind of connection to New York City. Um, some houses go up 20, 25, 30 million. And then you have the sort of uh, um, huge Latino population that services them, right? So you have this huge uh split like my child's school is 50 percent hispanic um and so actually if you look at my daughter's class photo she's one of the few caucasian children in her class so you know it's ironic that in a place with such extreme wealth my kid is actually in a way more ethnically diverse school than almost they would she would almost be anywhere else in the united states so it's it's a very it's a very it's it's a it's a society of extreme you know, you, you can't pin it down in any way. So I have very poor clients. I have very rich clients. I have extremely traumatized clients. I have, I mean, it, it's a very interesting place. <laughs> it's awesome. I love it, actually. Well, that must make it much richer for you as a practitioner to see a, a wide variety of people rather than just seeing people in a narrow socioeconomic spectrum. Um, and mm-hmm. when you when you look at these two populations that you're treating, uh, just sort of generalizing them as two populations. Um, are they dealing with the same kind of issues? Are the very rich dealing with the same issues as the very poor with regard to the concept of shame? Uh, no. No. Because <laughs> shame is really cult. Yeah, shame is super cultural. I mean, sh- the cult- culture is, is super influential on shame, right? So the culture is so different between like the Hispanic, you know, kids tend to, to have a lot more of toxic masculinity. You know, those kids feel like the men feel like they have to be men and there's a lot more homophobia. Um, the, the, uh, the, you know, affluent white rich people have way less homophobia, but then they have a lot more shame around, you know, can I be rich? Can I live up to my parents' ideas? You know, will I be invited to all the clubs and parties that my parents are invited to? So they have very different spectrums of shame, very different because shame is so affected by culture. It is, in fact, produced by culture. So if shame is produced by culture, then it's incumbent upon you as the treatment specialist to understand the culture of the person that's coming to you. Otherwise, you'd be mixing and matching and it wouldn't fit. No, which is why I watch all their TV shows. Like, you know, I get into it. Whatever they do, I try to do myself. You know, if they say they're into this, I... I do that. You know, if they say they're into that, I do that. Like I, I always try to be hip. I don't know if I always succeed because I'm still, you know, the crazy talls, like guy dressed, you know, I'll never be like their bestie, but I do try to like stay on their level. I get down on the floor, I play with them. I, I try to, I try to be cool. Yeah. You know, we can all debate whether or not I am. <laughs> so one of the takeaways from our, for our listeners is just to what extent Shaming is a cultural phenomenon. It's not a universal phenomenon, one kind of shame for everybody. And so for- there's obviously themes of shame. There's certainly themes that go through cultures. But, but you know, the actual cultural is just hugely influential on in shame, hugely. And can you tell us anything about your use of ketamine as a way of treating shame and teaching people about shame? Do they connect? Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, I think what I love about the psychedelics and ketamine is that uh, people who internalize shame have extreme avoidance patterns. And it's almost like they bury shame so far down in their subconscious mind that it would take a crane to get it out. And that crane is usually psychedelics because they can't access it anymore. Like it's gone and it's creating, you know, panic attacks. It's creating body, their stomach hurts, IBS, you know, all this stuff because their subconscious mind is like trying to tell them something, but they're repressing it so hardcore. And psychedelics allow that ego to dissolve and ketamine, the ego dissolves long enough that they can reach into their subconscious and pull that stuff out. You know, they'll all of a sudden have a memory from when they were four or five years old, you know, something that happened, you know, which produced extreme shame and that allows it to heal. Those of us, I think it's true of all the psychedelics. Well, those of us who have been trained to do psychedelic psychotherapy um, with uh, LSD and uh, to a lesser extent with, uh, with psilocybin, uh, we're trained to administer the material and then pretty much stay out of the way and let the person do their own inner work. In fact, Leo Zeff, the secret chief who uh, who trained me, I don't know if you've seen his book, but if you haven't, I think you'll enjoy it. It's called The Secret Chief. And he was an early practitioner of psychedelics who literally administered it to thousands of therapists around the world who came to him from all around the world. He happened to be a neighbor of mine, so I was very fortunate and, and got mentoring from him. And his technique was to put eye shades. He put eye shades on me, for example, when I was his, uh, his, his, his client. Uh, he put on eye shades and earphones. And the entire six to eight hours was doing inner work, and there was very little. But it sounds like with ketamine therapy, which I'm much less familiar with, the practitioner, you in this case, is more active. Is that correct? Is there more for you to do with ketamine therapy? It's definitely a matter of personal preference. There are lots of ketamine clients. They just put on eye shades and earphones, and they're out. I, I, in all aspects of my practice, I've always been very involved. My Aunt Marie was a social worker who was my inspiration, was a very directive, very active participant. And I'm like her. So I can't stay out of it. I just, just the way I am. So, you know, my practice is I'm asking questions during the session, especially if I know they have something that's stuck. You know, I will ask them questions. I try not to uh, guide it too much because I don't want to interfere, but I will ask pointed questions like, Hey, you said to me, you want to think about X. Have you had any thoughts about that? So sometimes I'll try to direct it in a certain direction. If I feel that, you know, in my work with them, there's a place they're stuck. Sometimes I just let them have their own time. Either way. I don't like the ear thing. I don't like the, um, headphones. I'll actually some, I do like the mask because I don't want them to have to worry about what they look like or looking at me. So I do use the mask, but I'll play drums for them. I'll play, you know, I'll do singing bowls. I'll use, you know, different kinds of sound that I play. So I don't want them to have the, um, and I'll ask them, where are you right now? What are you seeing? And I write it all down. And so later on, I'll say, you know, you said you saw this, or you said you saw purple or what did that mean? Because uh, sometimes it's like a dream and then you can't remember. Yes. Yes. And how long does a ketamine uh, tr- a session uh, typically last? 
So it's a total of three hours. The medicine is probably in a second. You're in a psychedelic state for about an hour. And then two hours of work with you. It's like, you know, coming in, getting comfortable, talking, you know, I, I have an altar so patients can pray or just journal, you know, have some self-reflection. Then there's, uh, then there's the time of the medicine taking effect, which is, you know, sometimes up to 20 minutes. And then there's a the full psychedelic state and then they're coming out of it. And then we're doing integration, which means just talking about the experience and trying to see how it might relate to their lives in various ways. And tell us about uh, insurance and how does insurance come into play on a three-hour session like that? <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> insurance does not cover ketamine treatments yet. It may eventually, but um, I can bill as regular psychiatry That's, because I am a psychiatrist. So I can. Yeah. So you can bill for you the. You can't bill for the. No, but you can bill for the three yeah, hours can. seeing the psychiatrist, namely yourself. Correct. Yeah. Yes. You can bill for that, but you can't bill for the academy. Yeah, I, I understand. So take a pause now and tell us what else would you like our listeners to know about your book? Well, about the book, I'd really love for them to know that um, that they have to really be active, whether they're a parent or not. If they're a parent, they have to be an active partner with their kids' sexual development at all stages as soon as they can talk. And that's outlined in the book. And then if they're not a parent, it's about owning your own sexual values in a way that someday if you become a parent, you'll be able to communicate them. So cognitive reframing, what did you learn over the years about sex that you would like to pass down? And what did you like take in that was traumatizing that you would prefer not to pass down and like sort of clarify your values. And with kids, you always have to spin cognitive reframe, we call it, you know, so you're, you're not going to say, Hey, you know, I was raped in high school. And therefore, you know, I really want you to be so careful, because that's kind of like oversharing, you know, and you don't need to pass down your trauma. But you could say, I mean, you might say that to an older teen, you're not gonna say that to a five year old. But you you would say, you know, hey, you know, I really want you to have, you know, understand and communicate effectively effectively your sexual boundaries, you know, and be very clear from the start what you're willing and not willing to do with any specific person, because that'll keep you safe. That's spinning a bad story into a positive way to talk about it with your, your children. I would imagine that a significant percentage of the people you see, the parents you see, who you're te- wanting to teach about how to communicate a non-shaming experience to their children, mm-hmm. I imagine a significant percentage of the parents themselves have shame about their sexuality. And how do you deal with that? Yeah, and that's why. Yeah, which is why I talk in the second half of the book about uh, cognitive reframing and how to deal with your own sexual shame and pass down the correct. It's it's like the basic cognitive behavioral therapy techniques I've learned over the many years. You know, identifying the distortion, right, which is like where where you're thinking about things very negatively and changing that distortion and spinning it into something it doesn't have to be overwhelmingly positive, but that's very fair and balanced. And through those exercises you can learn to take the pearls out of things, right? And you, in life, you always have to focus on the pearls. Like no matter what's happened to you, the worst things in the world, like you can always find the pearls of it and you focus on those. Otherwise, you're going to live your life in misery. So people who are listening to this, parents particularly, and parents who are reading your book, 
they really should be prepared to do their own work when they see you or one of your colleagues, one of us, you know, anywhere in the country. They really need to be prepared to do their own work and look at their own sense of shame before they're able to really communicate openly with their children and not convey that shame to them inadvertently. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, you want to pass down in intergenerational wisdom, not trauma. We're caught in this intergenerational trauma spiral, you know, and we can flip that narrative at any point. You know, it could start with any generation, but that requires doing the work and not just passing down whatever crap that your parents pass down to you. And there may be amazing things your parents pass down to you. You should keep those things. But the things that didn't go well, the things that created shame, you got to look at how to do things differently. Yes, that's what I call breaking the the link of evolution and, mm-hmm. and reframing. You're, t- you're really talking yeah, about cognitive a, reframing. a lot of cognitive reframing. Yes. Yep. That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> We're on the same page, Richard. I love it. Yes, we definitely. Same height, same page. <laughs> That's right. How old are your children, Leah? They are nine and 12. So I am in like, oh, I am in the trenches. You're right. I got my boxing gloves on. You are right on the edge of going into that time when you're going to have to practice what you preach. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Oh, <laughs> I really am. I, I bet. I bet. Cognitive reframing. Everyone's like, ah, oh, teenagers are terrible. I'm like, I can't wait. I'm just so excited. I myself have two daughters and uh, <sighs> I'm very pleased with how they came out. I think things. I think we did a good job at uh, creating as little shame as possible. Um, but after this program, how tall are they? <laughs> um, five, nine, and ten. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, um, but I have to, I'm going to tell you that after this program, I will definitely be talking to both of them about a shame as a concept and and where is it uh, in their lives and ask them to examine it further and to and to yeah. uh, to work on doing their work and they are both doing their work one of them is in new york and she and when when you can become a grandparent I, I actually did a podcast on grandparenting i do think you can play an amazing role uh in developing in the sexual development of your grandchildren like you know it doesn't have to stop just you know there's not one role model for a kid you could be that safe person to talk about things that the parents can't deal with. And I love that. And what do you say to parents when they say to you, oh, this topic of uh, sex and sex education, that's something they take care of in school. That's we don't need to do that Uh at home. What do you say to them? I laugh. I'm like, uh, would you would you leave? You know, would you let your school take care of their doctor's appointment? Would you let the school you know, teach your kids what's right and wrong? Like, we do let the school, you know, rely on the school to, you know, teach them how to brush their teeth or tie their shoes. Like, you got to be involved with your kids. And the school does an abysmal job. I mean, the American school system is abysmal. Maybe if they lived in, 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 uh, in northern, like in Sweden, it'd be different. But the North, the American school system, they don't think their first top, the first time they even talk about it is age 12. That is ridiculously too late. By that point, the kids are going like this. You know, they're covering their eyes, going, "Don't talk about it." You know, it's like almost too late. You really got to get them way earlier. You know, to 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 uh, to start that. And that's what you know the Northern European countries do, and it and they have the lowest rates of in you know of 
of uh, sexually transmitted disease, the lowest rates of, you know, uh, infant mortality, the lowest. I mean, they, they're doing everything right over there. We really need to learn from them. I've flirted with the concept of moving to the Scandinavian countries my entire life, yeah. my entire life, really, from the time I was a te- yeah. the time I was a teenager in college and got educated. I've always looked to those places yeah. as the most advanced. You know, actually, I think it's Denmark has the highest yeah, percentage yeah, of people on the planet who feel that they have a say in government, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's a really delicious book. Uh, written about um, Denmark that I'm going to ref- tell you about. It's called My Year of Living Danishly. And it's a really fun, yeah. it's a fun book about two, an English couple who moved to Denmark and she was a journalist and she wrote this book, My Year of, of What It's Like Living There. It's truly remarkable that they're a beacon of light for the rest of us in the world. But for my whole life, we've always been behind them and we're still way behind them. And it may be related to what I said in the beginning in my introduction about community, because they're small countries. And it could be that it has some, the fact that they're small allows them to be so advanced. Um, getting back, uh, getting back to your book, the, the, the founding fathers of our country, an amazing group of people, placed a lot of value on what they called virtue. And part of virtue is speaking the truth. When they spoke to each other, at least from what we know of historical record, when you asked them a question, it was incumbent upon them in the very molecular structure of their being to give an honest answer, which you could rely on. We live in an age now of disinformation where people are afraid to, to trust media, afraid to trust leaders. This hypocrisy is rampant and it's crazy making. And I'd like you to talk about how parents can teach honesty, integrity, and so, and the doing of things to fit one's inner standards of right and wrong and not feel guilt and not feel bad. How does how do, how do you address the teaching of integrity with parents? Well, I love the founding fathers because they they really were very inspired by the Stoics, and you know they were very into honesty and integrity, and I, so it's, I love that. And and I think when it comes to raising children, I talk a lot about values, passing down your values. What are your values? You know, like for example is it okay to lie, right? And actually, to be honest with you, it is okay to lie. We lie all the time because it protects people's feelings when we lie. But it's about what can you lie about and what circumstances and how does that work? You know, and how do you integrity, you know, people with integrity also are protective of other people's, you know, relationships and feelings. And so, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a complicated discussion, but you can sort of say, okay, in which, in which arenas is it okay to lie? In which arenas is it not? Right. And that's like a sharing of values. I mean, it, it's a complicated discussion, of course, but. It, it's very complicated. The way I think about it. And do, do parents come to you with questions about how to teach their children about money? Yeah. I mean, I think that money is a very interesting thing in my practice because for a lot of the kids in my practice, they don't have any, they have to work. And they tend to value money a lot more than the ones who never are made to work because they have a lot of money. And, um, and so their relationship with money gets very, 
it gets very interesting. The wealthier patients, they have a lot of problems um, working when they get older, like full time. They just never were really uh, asked to do it. And then when they're finally having to get their first job, they're just shocked about how how hard it is and they don't have any resilience. So I still think like we got to figure out how with those that subset of patients to make them a little more hungry and not give them so much so that they don't understand the value of hard work. Is bestowing money on the children a disincentive to creating contributing members of society? Oh, for sure. The trust fund kids, so many of them really don't have a very hard time, you know, becoming successful like their parents were because they just they were given like just enough money early on to really disincentivize them to make something of their lives. So it definitely has a negative effect. However, there's an exception to every rule and there's many really wealthy parents who don't give their kids any money till they're in their 30s or they'll like force them to get a job or like then those kids do way better. Are, are, are you seeing a trend? Are people with money holding up on bestowing money in order to not disincentivize their own children? Are they learning about that? Or is uh, what are you seeing in that area, if anything? I don't see any trends per se. It's just like some parents, you know, some parents give their kids a massive, they know about a massive trust fund by the time they're 15, they know they're getting all this money. So like, yeah. And some parents, you know, don't say anything or just say, you're not getting any money till you're ex old, so not even a dime. So then they're working. So it, it's it's so variable depending on the parent. The ones who do it right are the ones who delay gratification for their kids and, you know, force their kids to either get a job or volunteer or like, you know, they won't give them anything otherwise. Those are the parents who end up having more successful children. What else would you like to us to know? What, before we finish up, we're coming to the end of our time. What else would you like to, us to know about your book, about your practice, about about your what you want to educate us about? You've got a lot to teach. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I am very pleased to be here. Thank you. And I think um, I would love for people to reach out and look for psychedelic practitioners in their area. I think it's such a profound or come out to the Hamptons. It's such a profound tool. Um, and I hope people will reach out and to buy my book, No Shame, I'll talk with your kids about sex, self-confidence and healthy relationships. Read more about uh, about how to be a really effective parent. So those are the two things. <laughs> and if listeners want to reach you, as you said, come out to the Hamptons, how can they best re- yeah. how can they best reach out to you? They can come uh, look at my w- uh, website, Shameless Psychiatrist. And uh, you'll find my contact information there. There's a newsletter I send out about different topics of parenting. So just feel free to reach out. They can contact me through there. The website is called Shameless Psychiatrist? Yep, www.shamelesspsychiatrist, P-S-Y-C-H-I-A, in case you don't know how to spell it, dot com. Leah, thank you very much yeah. for being on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today. It's been a pleasure learning from you, and it's been really a pleasure uh, relating okay. to you. You're, you you, uh, you offer a great deal, and I can see why, why your patients really benefit from being with you. Thank you very much, Richard. It was really fun. I can't wait to see you about your new book. I'm very interested. Uh, the Sex Unveiled book, I think you'll enjoy. I'm, I, yeah. I've, I dedicated it to the sex workers around the world, some of the most courageous women and men th- that we have in our society because they, they really just uh, breaking ground with regard to cultural norms. And uh, they're definitely not all 
what we the public thinks they are, which is people who grew up uh, addicted and uh, and screwed up and beaten and so on. There's a whole new wave going on, but we'll learn more about it. So thank you again for being with us, and thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I look forward to you joining us again next week. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.